today I want to kind of continue the theme that Pastor Eric so very capably introduced last week as he uh, so articulately contrasted the distinction and the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of heaven, teaching us how to live with the wisdom of heaven so that we look like the wisdom of God. And along those lines, our subject today is what I'm calling wars and rumors of wars. Most of you will recognize that statement as coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, you'd be right if that's the case, because that's what Jesus said near the end of his earthly ministry, Matthew chapter 24, as he was teaching about matters associated with his second coming and matters associated with the end of the age. One of the ways Jesus says that we can know that we are in fact living in the last days is the prevalence of war. You will hear, Jesus said, of wars and rumors of wars. And while that's certainly true, when we open our Bibles to James chapter four, we find the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ reminding us that even the church itself can be plagued by wars and rumors of wars. And what a tragedy when there are rumors of wars coming from within the very family of God. James will be quick to remind us that whenever that happens, and it happens altogether too frequently, there are always inevitable consequences. There are consequences for the church. There are consequences for the greater community in which the church resides. And there are consequences for the gospel mission that the church has received from our Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, I heard Henry Blackaby, who wrote that great work, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby said, whenever a church divides, it cancels the gospel in its very community. And I believe that's true. A church that lives together in unity supports the gospel message. But a church that divides cancels the gospel message. And where the unity of the Spirit is lacking, the Bible is quick to remind us that the gospel mission will always be hindered. This is James' primary point. Again, coming on the heels of this discussion, which way are you going to live? With the wisdom of the world or with the very wisdom of the Spirit of God? And James makes this point here in chapter 4 of his letter. Let's take a look beginning in verse number 1. Those of you that are able, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the holy and errant infallible word of the living God. It's on the screen if you need it. Here's what it says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? <clears throat> Therefore, 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Father, thank you for the power of your eternal word. We're so grateful that we have the word of God as a gift to guide us. And one of the things that your word teaches us that we long for more than anything else is to reflect the holy character of God as the people of God. We know that that's one of the few things that can make an eternal difference in this world that is so lost and so broken, a world that is so desperate for Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to take the words of James inspired by your Holy Spirit and help us to take them to heart and to put them into practice that we might live as one even as we are one in Christ. And may we do it all for the glory of God. We ask this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, church family. You all can be seated. You know, one thing that I think is an obvious takeaway from this passage is that the early church was not perfect. Doesn't that make you feel better this morning? Because we know we're not perfect, right? No church is perfect church. That's why if you're looking to join a perfect church, uh, you're on a fool's errand. You're never gonna find a perfect church. And even if you did, you'd jack it up by joining it, amen. <laughs> because, because you're not perfect and neither am I. But sometimes we have these idealized notions that this first century church had everything together. And we just know that that's absolutely not the case. I mean, James calls the church a bunch of adulterers here. I'd say he's a little bit sideways with them uh, about a few things. So we don't want to have this mistaken notion that the early church is always walking arm in arm and hand in hand, singing kumbaya, you know, every time they get together. There's a lot about the early church I think that we should embrace. I mean, that picture of the early church in the second chapter of Acts, man, that's what we want to look like. Amen. Um, but there's also much about the early church that in their infancy is babes following the Lord Jesus Christ. There's much about the early church that's to be avoided, and that's why we ought to be thankful that the Lord has given us a glimpse of the early church, warts and all, right? I mean, if people were making this stuff up, this is the kind of stuff you never put in the Bible. This is how we know it. One reason we know it's inspired by the Spirit because the Spirit gives us the full picture, even when it's not always a pretty picture. And so uh, the church was anything but perfect, and James <clears throat> is very quick to point that out to us. What he's gonna do here today is he gives us this image of a church that sometimes is in the midst of war or uh, living in such a way that it creates rumors of wars. He's gonna organize the thoughts of this passage around three things. He's gonna give us, first of all, the cause of the conflict. Then he's gonna talk about some of the consequences of church conflict. And then he's gonna give us a remedy, the cure for church conflict. So in the few minutes that we have together today, let's let that be our guide. And we'll begin, first of all, by looking at the cause of church conflict. And here it is, almost always misplaced priorities. The cause of church conflict 
is misplaced priorities. As he's so prone to do in this letter, James begins by asking a rhetorical question, but one that's very practical. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He wants to get the church thinking here and so begins by asking this question. Quarrels and fights is more literally wars and fights. This is the word for war. What causes war among you? What causes argumentation? What causes fights among you? And apparently this was a church, you know, we often talk about the church needing to extend the right hand of fellowship, but all of us have heard war stories. Sometimes churches can offer the right fist of fellowship rather than the right hand of fellowship. And that's apparently a bit of what was happening here. And we chuckle at that, but to James, it was no laughing matter. He wants to get to the root of the problem because he wants to get the problem corrected. He wants to uh, bring about a measure of healing so that the gospel mission can continue unabated. What is causing all this division among you, the very people of God? Because he knows the mission and the gospel effectiveness of the church is at stake. The issue without a doubt is misplaced priorities. And misplaced priorities still dog the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from hither and yon, even to this very day. There are three of them that he points out in this passage of scripture. The first of these misplaced priorities is what we might call an unhealthy pursuit of pleasure. This just plain old self-centeredness. The church can have too many people going their own individualistic kind of way and they're all about what they want, getting what they want, how they want it, when they want it. Plain old self-centeredness. I'm gonna chase after what's best for me in life, in my family, in my ministry. And that can cause a spillover effect in the church if you're not careful. James answers this opening question with another question. Don't you hate it when somebody answers a question with a question? That's what he does. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Implied answer what? Yes, that your passions are at war within you. There it is right there. The word passions is a Greek word hedone. We get our word hedonism from it. You know what a hedonist is, don't you? A hedonist is somebody that's after pleasure at all cost. That's the summum bonum. That's the great goal of life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to maximize life so that I milk the most pleasure out of it that I possibly can. Uh, and this is something that Christians in the Western world constantly struggle with simply because we're so materialistically well off. But it was apparently just as true in the first generation church because James says so. And this was a church that really didn't have a whole lot of materialistic goods. All some of them were better off than others. But most of us in the room today pretty much go where we want to go when we want to go there and buy what we want to buy when we want to buy it, so forth and so on. Uh, but this early church was evidently struggling with many of the same problems. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 3. Notice it with me, Philippians 3 and 18. For many live as what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, how do you know that they're enemies of the cross of Christ? Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their what? Is their stomach. Their mind is set on what? Say it out loud. Earthly things. This is what James is talking about here. This can cause major division in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're too focused on stuff, 
too focused on our own opinions, too focused on our own way, too focused on getting our own uh, experiences met or our desires met and chasing after our experiences. You know, for decades, the, the mantra, the, the worldview of so-called first world countries like the United States, Western Europe, the mantra has been gain as much money as you can, make as much money as you can, gain as much pleasure as you can, have as much fun as you can. This is the end all of life for so many people. This relentless pursuit of pleasure and passions, it can get in the way of effective ministry if that's what your life is all about. In fact, it can actually keep you from engaging in effective ministry because you're so wound up about what you're gonna gain out of life and what you wanna do in life. You never focus on others, which is not a very Christ-like thing to do. So the question becomes, in my life, do others really come first? As they did with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of Christ-like living. Do others really come first? Or is my life really all about me, my money, my pleasures, my own personal experience? You have to be careful because it's really easy, even for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, for self to get in the way. Amen. For self to become the end all of life. Life becomes all about you. And then when you don't get what you want, when you don't always get your way, this unhealthy focus on self, this unhealthy pursuit of pleasure can lead secondly to an unholy display of passion. And that's a problem within the church as well. I mean, this whole business of an unhealthy pursuit of pleasure, if unmet, could lead to an unholy display of passion. Look at what James says in verse two. You desire and do not have, so you murder. What? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's your right fist of fellowship right there. I've often wondered as I've read this passage through the years whether somebody actually got killed in the church. I mean, he uses a very specific word for murder that in the Bible is almost never used metaphorically. Now, we do. I mean, some of y'all told your kids you're going to murder them. <laughs> but you really don't mean it. You know, it's like the Three Stooges. I'll murder you, right? But he's not going to murder anybody. But that's just a way of kind of expressing anger. But this is a very specific word. And I've often wondered, I mean, did somebody really throw down on somebody else in the family of God? Well, could be. I mean, maybe somebody didn't get their way. And then they got angry, and that anger led to hostility in the worst kind of way. Man, it happens all the time. Can't you see that happening? Even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, I've I'm, I may have told y'all before, when I was a kid, a fist fight broke out in the church right in the middle of the worship service. On Sunday morning, it's, you know what, you want a definition of a miracle? Me here today. Because for most people to witness that, they would never, they'd be too afraid to walk back to a church again. It was over a child custody issue. And the baby was in church with its mother that morning and the other family happened to show up as well. And the fireworks got started. And one approached the other. I mean, we're singing Kumbaya together, man. And I'm telling you, here they come together and pretty soon it got physical. And then it was over at that point. The whole thing spilled over into the parking lot. Somebody called Metro Nashville Police Department. They showed up. 
not knowing that one of the women of the family was like a 500-degree black belt in some form of the martial arts, threw a Metro police officer over the hood of his car with me watching. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so I'm telling you, it's a miracle. Somebody didn't die that day. They could have. It wasn't concealed carry back then, amen. But it could, have, it could have been messy. So I don't know. I mean, what I do know is that whenever things like that happen, whether James is speaking literally or maybe he is using the word murder in a hyperbolic sense like Jesus did. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it, it was said, thou shall not commit murder. But I say to you, Whoever has this uncontrolled anger is liable to the judgment, Jesus said. And so whoever is angry with his brother, you'll have to give an account for that unto God because God sees that as something of a murderous act in the eyes of God. Maybe James is using it in the way his half-brother used it there in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know. Either way, it really doesn't matter. The point simply is that misplaced priorities lead to internal conflicts for individual people that can sometimes, if they're not met, spill over into some form of hostility, an external display of passion. And let me just say, are y'all still with me? Say amen. amen. This is something we need to hear because I don't have to tell you this morning, we're living in unparalleled times of division and hate. I mean, there's a lot to foster disunity, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Because never in my time in the church are people making what, you know, to them is a big deal, but to, to, the, to the Lord, I think in matters of eternity are small potato issues. And they're making them absolute tests of fellowship so that we can't disagree about anything anymore. And if you disagree about anything, particularly if I see it as a top-tier issue, even if God doesn't, I'm just not going to have anything to do with you anymore. People are walking away from family members, walking away from long-standing friendships over matters that may well be important matters, but they're not eternal matters. And we shouldn't be sacrificing friendships over non-essential matters. Are y'all hearing me this morning? That's not pleasing under the God. Listen, the last time I checked, the Bible tells me that as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm supposed to love my enemies. I'm supposed to bless those who persecute me. How in the world can I walk away from a family member or from a friend over matters of politics? over vaccinations? Are you kidding me? And yet it's happening all over the world today. And God is not pleased with that. Whenever things like that happen, whenever there's this unhealthy pursuit of what's important to be that sometimes is unmet and spills over into an unholy display of passion, it sometimes reveals a third thing, which is an unhelpful approach to prayer. Somebody's not praying. 
And you can usually tell it when somebody is prayerless in their life. James says that here in verse two. You do not have because you do not ask. And he's not talking about getting your wish list from a cosmic Santa Claus. All you gotta do is ask God, God give you whatever y'all want. That's not what this verse means. This verse basically is saying, you know what? You don't have unity because you're not praying. That's what that verse says. Y'all are messed up because you're not praying. And when you are praying, you're praying unhelpfully. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask what? Wrongly to spend it on your passion. See, there's the self again. You're praying in such a way that life's all about you, that, that your mission in life is to bend God to fit your mold. When the whole purpose of prayer is not for God to get where you are, it's for you to get where God is. That's why we pray. Now, last time I checked, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But many times, even within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, my kingdom come, my will be done. And the import here is, if that's the way you're gonna pray, then you're better off not even praying at all. So there are two indictments here for churches in conflict. One is the lack of prayer, and one is unhelpful prayer, inappropriate prayer. Either you do not ask, or you ask with wrong motives. And what happens when that occurs, you're gonna miss out on God's very best. You're gonna miss out on the true blessings of heaven that God really wants you to have. So the cause of church conflict, misplaced priorities, an unhealthy pursuit of pleasure, which leads to an unholy display of passion, all caused by an unhelpful approach to prayer where there is any prayer at all. Everybody tracking with me so far? Amen. But then notice secondly, that's the diagnosis. The second thing James does is tell us the consequences if there's not healing. The consequences of church conflict is divine hostility. You become an enemy of God, and, and, and I think, how can that be? Is it possible for a disciple of Christ to live as an enemy of God? Yes, practically. Now, you're still a child of God, but you can live in opposition to God even as a child of God. And this is what James is communicating here. Back when we first began this series, eight or nine years ago, whenever it was, uh, I told you that James 4.4 4 is the key verse of the whole letter. <clears throat> this is the verse around which everything in James revolves. It summarizes the whole letter. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? an enemy of God. And that conclusion is just basic to everything that James is trying to communicate. Again, are you gonna live with the wisdom of the world or with the wisdom of heaven? That was last Sunday's message. And living with the wisdom of heaven 
Being a friend of God means learning to be joyful even in times of trials. It means learning to control your tongue. It means learning not to discriminate against people in the house of God. All those things that we've talked about in the study of James up to this point has everything to do with whose friend are you? Are you living as a friend of the world? Are you living as a friend of God? Because James says you can't be both at the same time. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so more than anything else, James is trying to get the very people of God known as the church to live with a spiritual wholeness, the spiritual integrity, the very holiness of God. And the way that you do that, at least in part, is you got to learn to choose God over the world. And again, this is a great challenge for those of us that live in first world countries because there's just so much materialism all around us, all the time, <clears throat> that tempts us to make decisions independently of the will of, the, of God, to keep up with the Joneses, to keep up with our neighbors, because we've become convinced that we've got to have all this stuff in order to be happy. And so if we're not careful, we'll end up <clears throat> living as friends of the world more than as friends of God. And the reason that's a problem is because love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive. I, they're just totally incompatible. James is using the world when he says befriending the world. He's not talking about planet Earth. He's using the world in a metaphorical kind of way to describe this fallen, broken, evil world system that's under the control of the devil. The devil is the prince of the power of the air. The devil is the ruler of this present darkness known as the world. And so here's the problem. If you end up loving the world more than you love God, you end up following the devil more than you end up following Christ. And that's the ultimate tragedy. And so you don't want to do that. We have to live in the world. We, we're to love the people of the world, every one of them. But the scripture is very clear. We can't embrace the things of the world. 1 John 2 verse 15, for example. <clears throat> Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's what James is saying right here, just in a different way <clears throat> with a few different words. No, God is the living God. He's the only God. And as the living God, he has no equal. And the Bible also teaches that God is a jealous God. You remember that? So God has no equal as the living God. God will tolerate no rival as a jealous God. And James alludes to that in verse number five here when he says that God yearns how? Jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Um, and so what James is doing there is he's paraphrasing this consistent Old Testament teaching about who we are and about who God is. God is the creator. We are the ones God has created. God is the one who's made us. He's breathed the very spirit of life into us. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. And James is quick to remind us God is jealous for how we live our lives because God is jealous for his glory. He wants his glory to shine 
through people who belong to him. In fact, God's so concerned about that, he etched it into the tablets of the Ten Commandments, didn't he? Exodus 20 and verse 5, you shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Say it out loud. A jealous God. Then over in Exodus 34, and this is very telling, where Moses is expanding on the law, he says to the people, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord, watch this now, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now God has all of these names in the Bible, right? And one of these days I'll do a series. I've never done a series of messages on the names of God in the Bible. But I bet there's not one out of 10 people here today who would name one of the names of God as jealous. And yet Moses goes out of his way to, to use jealous not only as an adjective to describe God, but as a nominative to tell us this is his name. He's so jealous that his name is jealous. Now, not jealous like we would describe it because when we tend to get jealous in relationships, we tend to have like not really good thoughts. Now, God is jealous in a 100% holy kind of way not in a sinful kind of way that so often marks our jealousy. But we can be jealous in a God-like way, right? I'm jealous for your time as a pastor. I want you here, and I got spies to tell me where you are when you're not here. <laughs> because I'm jealous for your time. Not in a self-centered kind of way, because I kind of like to think Hillcrest's a pretty good place to be on the Lord's Day, Amen. And like we need all the stuff we do here. We need to sing together and, and we need to hear from the word and we need to go to small groups so we can dialogue with one another about the word. Those are things that we have to have <clears throat> as growing disciples, people called by the name of God. So God is jealous in a 100% holy kind of way for us. And this is why God has a real problem when we're trying to befriend the world and befriend him at the same time, and, and so many of God's people, they want that, and I've been guilty of that in my own life, and I'm, I'm quick to admit it. We wanna have the best of both worlds, but here's, here's the stark biblical reality. You can't, you can't. You know, I've often heard it, well, I just want it all. I wanna be able to stay home and raise my kid, and yet I wanna be able to have a career, and I wanna be able to make all this, but well, you can't have it all. You have to make choices based on the right priorities in life, what's really important. And you can't always have the best of both worlds. It's like Elijah said to the people, 1 Kings 18, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Don't you just love that statement? How long are you gonna limp along between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him, but quit riding the fence. Quit trying to live in two different worlds at the same time because you can't do it. You can't follow both. Jesus said that no man can serve two masters. So James is reminding us that this persistent friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. But there's hope. There's hope for a world-loving church plagued by self-centeredness and the conflict that inevitably flows from it and the cure for church conflict, third, is a grace-driven humility. 
a grace-driven humility. I'm gonna talk more about the importance of humility next week as a Christian virtue. For today, because our time's about out, we'll just have time to even mention that it's there, but more about that next Sunday. Verse six says, but God gives more grace. Somebody say amen. I mean, we've been there all this conflict in this passage of scripture and self-centeredness and befriending the world and becoming an enemy of God. And then boom, here's this wonderful phrase again, but God, ultimately the solution lies more with him than it does even with us who in our brokenness and in our fallenness so often fall short. Aren't you thankful for the phrase, but God? James says, but he here, but he's talking about God. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, referring again to scripture, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the what? To the humble. Again, James is paraphrasing here. But that statement is taken directly from Proverbs 3.34, which says, surely God scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, God, because of his holiness, sets himself up in opposition against those who are high and mighty, those who live with pride and selfishness. Those who befriend the world, God will oppose. But the other end of that is just as true to those who recognize the greatness of God and the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God and live in this humble submission and obedience to the word of God. God promises to give grace, more grace, more grace, more grace, abounding grace, which is exactly what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has to have in order to live in perpetual unity and oneness in a very fallen and broken world. God give us more grace. Somebody say amen. Because we need it. You can't live with humility apart from the grace of God. And only when you live in humility can you then minister the grace of God. Let me tell you something. I've been married to the same woman for 35 years. She's not in the room right now. Y'all listening? (laughs) There's a lot we don't agree on. In fact, there may be more we don't agree on than what we do agree on. We don't agree on the same kind of food. We don't, and it drives me crazy. We can never share a gargantuan meal at a restaurant, which we should be doing every meal. You ought to be sharing one entree, as big as they come. But we can't do it, because most of the time we don't agree on the kind of food we want to eat, and when we do agree, we don't agree on how we like it cooked. (laughs) So we don't agree. We 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 don't agree on the same kind of cars to drive. She doesn't like cars with a lot of power. I don't understand that. I don't. We almost got divorced a couple of years ago because I ended up buying a car that wasn't the better deal. It was not the better deal, but that's the one she wanted, so that's the one. We just don't don't agree on cars. We don't agree on the kind of vacations we ought to take as a family because she likes these resort, kick back, relax, 
soak in the sun. I don't want to do that. I want to go, go, go. I want to go to the historical places of the world. I want to see great monuments and great historical places and visit where the movers and shakers have made a difference throughout world history. But that's not relaxing enough. We, we, we don't agree on the same kind of home decor. I want everything to look like a men's club out of London, England with bricks and rich leathers and dark walnut paneling. I mean, and she's into this country crock. So those of you that have been in my house, no, we've given it over to country crock. See, here's the thing. There's a lot of stuff we don't agree on. None of that stuff matters. None of it matters. None of it, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans and the specter of eternity. It's not the most important stuff in all of life. None of it matters. You know what matters? We love God equally. We love and serve the God of the Bible. What matters is that we agree on the authority of this book right here. And that we agree that it is given from the Spirit of God and is a guidepost for how we live every part of our life, even though it doesn't have anything to say about furniture or automobiles. We agree on the priority of the family of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We agree totally on all of that. We agree on the importance of marriage and on the importance of family. We agree on how to love and properly relate to your children. Let me say this morning, those are the things that matter in life. Those are the things that count. Those are the kinds of things that we're supposed to major on as the family of God. For all those other things which have little or nothing to do with the kingdom of God, you know what I do? I just humble myself, I show grace, and I respond with the two most critical words any husband can ever utter, yes, dear. <laughs> That's humility. You defer for the sake of unity on those things that are not biblical priorities. There is no I in team. Every coach I ever had taught me that. That's true for marriage and it's true for the church. And grace is the remedy. Grace is the remedy that enables us to live with humility that brings about oneness and unity as the body of Christ. And the good news is God promises more grace. Grace upon grace as we daily battle the pressures and the temptations of self and life in a fallen and broken world. For where sin abounded, the Bible says, grace abounded all the more. Hebrews reminds us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you join with your pastor today and commit in 2022, I am going to pray for more abounding grace from the living God that I might show deference and live in humility on those matters that need to be deferred and focus my life on the things that truly count. Would you agree with me? That's the way we're gonna live in 2022, amen. Because let me tell you, that plea for grace is the only way 
to live in constant victory and constant oneness through the many seasons of life where you'll find yourself in the midst of wars and rumors of war. God, give us more grace. This is the word of God and all God's people said, amen. amen.